Wonder if you've ever discussed your faith with someone who is vehemently opposed to the Christian message. Uh, if you've ever attempted to share the good news of Jesus uh, with a hardened atheist, or even with someone who's just a bit sceptical. Uh, because if you have, you'll know that there are certain objections to the Christian faith, to faith in general, that come up time and time again. For example, the perceived conflict between science and religion, difficult passages in the Old Testament, the prevalence of suffering in our world, and the notion that religion causes war. But what you're unlikely to have heard is an objection to Christianity based on the idea that the resurrection didn't happen. Doesn't that strike you as rather odd? I mean, surely uh, uh, Jesus' resurrection is the linchpin of Christianity. Uh, The most effective way to pull the rug out from under Christianity would be to discredit the resurrection. But such an approach is seldom found even amongst the highly publicized atheist writers of our time. At the beginning of the 20th century, an English lawyer by the name of Albert Henry Ross set out to write a book disproving the resurrection. And his research led him to an unexpected conclusion. He became absolutely convinced that the resurrection of Jesus is a real historical fact. He became convinced that Jesus is alive. He became a Christian and he wrote a very different kind of a book. He wrote a book in defense of the resurrection. It's still in print today. Uh, Who Moved the Stone? It's uh, written under his pen name, Frank Morrison. So what makes such an unlikely event so plausible and powerful? That's what we're going to explore today. And there are four things that we're going to consider. Firstly, expectations. Did any first century Jew imagine that someone could be raised from the dead? Secondly, facts. What do the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, what do they tell us happened? Thirdly, evidence. Is there any evidence uh, to support the Bible's claim that Jesus rose from the dead? And fourthly, meaning. What does the resurrection mean to us today? Of course, we can only skim the answers to these questions, uh, but I want to provoke you into thinking more deeply about Jesus' resurrection. So first, the expectation. If you were here last week, uh, you will know that the kind of Messiah that the Jews were expecting was a conquering king, uh, an, uh, uh, a political and military leader who would uh, sweep the Romans to the side, who would liberate Israel from Roman oppression. That's the kind of Messiah they were expecting, that they were hoping for. So the first thing to say is that it would have been inconceivable to any first century Jew that their Messiah would be brutally executed at the hands of a pagan enemy, uh, in this case the Romans. That would not have entered anybody's imagination. And what of this idea of somebody being resurrected? How would that sit with Jewish expectations. Well, it would have been the widely held Jewish view that God would one day raise Israel. In other words, uh, Abraham and Moses and all the prophets and all God's people would one day be resurrected. They'd come up out of their graves to new life. But that would be a decisive and final event at the end of time. 
The idea that one person could be resurrected and everything else carry on as normal would have been completely alien to Jewish thought. So I want to look at two different perspectives. Firstly, the disciples. Jesus' disciples believed that he was the Messiah, but they didn't believe that their Messiah could be killed at the hands of the Romans. We'll come back to that in a moment. And then the Pharisees. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the uh, religious types. They didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, uh, but they remember that Jesus said this. He said, after three days, I will rise again. Of course, they didn't believe that he would, but they feared that the uh, disciples might stage it. Perhaps they'd come and steal the body and then claim that Jesus had risen. And that is why the religious authorities had Jesus's tomb sealed and guarded. The disciples believed that Jesus was, is the Messiah. The Jewish authorities didn't, the religious authorities. Two opposing perspectives, but two very Jewish perspectives. No one was expecting Jesus to die and then be raised to new life. The religious authorities expected, or they at least hoped, that Jesus would die, but they didn't expect him to rise again. The disciples didn't expect their Messiah to die in the first place. How could he? What would be the point in that, they would have thought. So nobody, nobody was expecting the events that unfolded on that first Easter morning. So let us now remind ourselves of the facts as recorded by the Gospel writers. Last week, uh, we remembered Palm Sunday, Jesus being welcomed by the crowd with shouts of acclamation, Hosanna, blessed is the King of Israel, welcomed as a conquering king. He then called time on the temple. He criticized the hypocrisy of the religious leaders, and they plotted to kill him. He was crucified at the hands of the Romans. Uh, many people didn't survive a Roman flogging, which Jesus experienced, let alone crucifixion. There can be no doubt that Jesus died on the cross. His body was taken down. He was laid in a tomb which was sealed and guarded. And on the third day, the tomb was empty. Jesus had risen from the dead. What an outrageous claim. What an outrageous claim. Where's the evidence? Firstly, was the tomb even empty on that first Easter morning? Well, according to Matthew's account, the terrified guards uh, returned to the chief priests and, and reported all that had happened. Earthquake, angels, stone rolled away, all of that. And this is what Matthew reports the chief priests as saying. When the chief priests had met and the elders uh, with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say to his disciples, or you are to say that his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. So why does Matthew even mention this? I mean, he carefully explains that the tomb is sealed and guarded. In other words, the body couldn't be stolen. But then he provides some sort of explanation as to how the body might have been stolen. Why does Matthew put something in there that could cause people to doubt his version of events? Well, it's in there because the religious authorities, the chief priests, were spreading the rumour that the disciples had stolen the body. But why would they need to 
spread such a rumour unless they had to account for there being an empty tomb. And we're told by all four gospel writers that the first to discover the empty tomb were a group of women. Actually, John only mentions Mary Magdalene. Uh, Matthew mentions Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Mark identifies the other Mary as the mother of James and adds uh, Salome into the group. And Luke uh, mentions uh, Joanne or Joanna as well uh, and other women. So, so why the discrepancies? Why can't the gospel writers agree on who was in this little group of women? Well, it's exactly what we would expect from eyewitness accounts. When we lived in uh, London, in Tottenham, I witnessed a mugging. Actually, I didn't see the mugging itself. I walked past the group of muggers, and uh, they looked a pretty dodgy bunch, and I got to the other side of the park, and I heard screaming. And I ran back, and the uh, assailants dispersed, and I stayed with the victim. The police were called, and a group of suspects were apprehended. And I was duly interviewed by the police, and it went something like this. How many muggers were there? Five, or it might have been six. I'm not 100% sure. Were they male or female? I think three were male and two were female. Or it could have been the other way around, not 100%. Did they say anything to you? Yes. What? Something along the lines of dot, dot, dot. I can't remember exactly. We wouldn't expect the gospel accounts to be exactly the same. If they were, it would indicate collusion, and that uh, would cast doubt over their authenticity. But all four gospel accounts agree that the first witnesses, the primary witnesses to the empty tomb, were women. And women in the ancient world were, for the most part, treated as second-class citizens. In Jesus' day, a woman's testimony was not admissible as evidence in a court of law. Uh, A woman's testimony was considered unreliable and untrustworthy. So if you were going to make up a story about Jesus' resurrection, the last people that you would choose to be your primary witnesses would be women. If you were going to make up a story like this, you would say that Peter or John or any other man was the first to discover the empty tomb. I mean, why uh, would you damage your case by saying it was women? knowing that people would scoff at that. They'd dismiss it. They wouldn't take it seriously. Why would you deliberately damage your case? Unless, of course, you were simply reporting the events as they happened. For me, the most compelling evidence for the resurrection is the transformation of the disciples. As we've seen, they were not expecting their Messiah to be crucified. From their perspective, it had all ended in disaster and defeat. The bottom had fallen out of their world. Uh, they, their, their hopes and dreams had been dashed. They were dispirited, depressed, fearful, heartbroken. And then Mary and the, uh, the other women, they show up with this most startling news. And Mary speaks first. She says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. We know from Luke's account that at first the disciples dismissed the women and they didn't take them seriously. They thought they were talking nonsense. It actually says that in Luke's gospel. They thought they were talking nonsense. But Peter and the other disciple, almost certainly the author of this gospel, an eyewitness, 
felt compelled to go and check it out. And so they run off to the tomb. Uh, the other disciple, uh, we think John, outruns Peter. You can imagine Peter chugging away behind and John uh, is a bit younger and fitter. He gets to the tomb first and he beholds this amazing scene. The grave clothes still there like an empty chrysalis. The headpiece folded up and put to one side. And the disciples were a pretty mixed bag. It's not uh, surprising that they all react in very different ways. John believed as soon as he saw the empty tomb. Thomas refused to believe until he could see and touch Jesus. But verse 8 says, John saw and believed. And then verse 9 says, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. John believes but he's not yet able to connect all the dots. And often coming to faith can be a little bit like that for us. We know that God is speaking to us. We know that God is working in our lives. We know that the gospel, the Christian message is true. But maybe we don't yet understand how it all fits together. That can very often be the experience of new Christians. The world says seeing is believing. Jesus and the gospel writers say something slightly different. They say, believe, and then you will see. And there can be no doubt that the disciples were fully convinced that Jesus is alive. They went from cowering in a darkened room to proclaiming to the whole of the known world that Jesus is alive. Ten out of the twelve disciples were martyred. They died because of their faith. Peter was crucified upside down. Why would they die for something that they knew to be a lie? If they had stolen the body, they would know it was a lie. If they hadn't seen Jesus raised from the dead, and they were saying that they had, they would know that it was a lie. Are we really to believe that on Friday afternoon, the disciples experienced what they believed to be a tragic defeat And then by Sunday morning, they had hatched and executed a plan to steal Jesus' bloody and broken body from a sealed and guarded tomb. And then they dedicated the rest of their lives to spreading the lie that Jesus is raised from the dead. And all this in the face of fierce opposition that eventually led to their own gruesome deaths. I don't know about you, but I just find that implausible. I find that far-fetched. The resurrection is a real historical event and the catalyst for the rapid expansion of the church in the first century and beyond all the way to the present day. So the last bit of evidence that I want to consider is the post-resurrection encounters with Jesus. And we have the first one here in John's Gospel, reading from verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. She doesn't know they're angels, she just sees two men. They asked her, "Why, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realise that it was Jesus. None of this makes any sense to Jesus, uh, to, to Mary. 
Uh, Mary thinks that somebody has moved Jesus' body. She can't understand why anyone would do that. Jesus asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. We can easily overlook that little detail. I love that. Thinking he was the gardener. Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. I think the joy and the wonder and the realisation of what had happened on that first Easter morning is captured by that one exchange, those two words, Mary, Rabboni. Jesus, of course, appeared to all the disciples on various occasions over a period of 40 days. The book of Acts tells us that he once appeared to at least 500 people at one time. Now, you can't make that kind of stuff up and get away with it. Imagine you read in the paper that 500 people had witnessed Donald Trump swimming in Orion Lagoon with Kim Jong-il. But no one could take a photo because everyone's cameras were jammed. Uh, You'd want to investigate. You'd want to speak to one of these witnesses. The chances are you would know one of these 500 witnesses, or at least you would know someone who knew someone. If there really were 500 witnesses, people might, they might, begin to take it seriously. But if not one of those witnesses could be found, then everybody would know that it was a hoax. You can't falsely claim that 500 people have seen something and then expect that story to be taken seriously. The sheer number of witnesses to Jesus' resurrection is good historical evidence that it happened. So the good evidence for Jesus' resurrection. So what? What does that mean for us today? Well, Jesus rose with a real body that you could see and touch. Jesus was resurrected. Lots of religions and belief systems talk about there being an afterlife, but only Christians talk about resurrection life. An afterlife normally means being whisked off somewhere, normally as a disembodied spirit to some other place. Resurrection life means living in a real physical world, this world that's been restored, renewed, put right, made perfect. Darkness has been completely subdued and overcome and dealt with. Jesus has been victorious. Jesus passed through death and he came out the other side. Jesus is the first to experience resurrection life, eternal life, everlasting life. And that is what he promises to all those who put their faith and their trust in him. The resurrection of Jesus means that death has been conquered. Sin and death have been destroyed. They've been dealt with. We can experience resurrection life. All of creation can experience resurrection life. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me 
will never die. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful news of Easter that, that so many are willing to just dismiss as a non-event, when in reality it is the most significant and important, the most earth-shaking event in history. We pray, Father, that we will capture the magnitude of this this morning, that sin and death have been destroyed, that you reign in glory and you will do forever. Father, we thank you that you cared so much for your creation, that you died on a cross. You took sin down into the grave and death and you left them there and you've been raised to new life. We pray, Father, that we can live in the light of the power of the resurrection. We pray, Father, that the, the power that raised Jesus from the dead will be at work in our lives to change and transform and renew. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.